Tov and Chodesh Tov, and welcome to TanakhStudy.com. This is Shani Tarragon, and before we continue with this week's parasha, Parashat Sav, I'd like to bring home a message that we've learned from Parashat Vayikra. Just to remind you, Parashat Vayikra introduced to us the message of how each and every individual among B'nai Yisrael has the ability of coming close to Hashem and finding favor before Him. For this reason, Parashat Vayikra listed the voluntary sacrifices before the obligatory ones. A voluntary offering, indicating man's quest for a special closeness to Hashem, is a higher expression of closeness to Hashem than the, the obligatory sacrifices, where the distant sinner seeks atonement that will allow him to close some of the gap that has been created or to regain a normal or regular closeness with Hashem through the Mishkan. Sometimes we feel that, especially today without the karbanot, this isn't very relevant. And after having introduced the sacrifices last week, I'd like to recount a suggestion that I had originally heard from Rav Yoni Grossman in order to make the sacrifices as relevant as possible in our lives today. And that is recognizing as we wake up each morning what we would potentially offer as a sacrifice to Hashem. Are we in an Ola mood to be able to... Uh, somehow regain a closeness with Hashem, or perhaps we're more in a mincha mood, where we want to thank Hashem for sustaining our lives, or maybe more shlamim. Do we feel that we want to participate with HaKadosh Baruch Hu in some type of korban that brings us all together? Or maybe we do feel a sense of chatat or Hashem, depending on the rift that we've created between ourselves and Hashem. And I ask you to reflect upon this now before we begin Parshat Zav, because we're going to find that at first glance, it seems that Parshat Zav merely reintroduces the same notes that are mentioned in Parshat Vayikra. But we're going to find that Parshat Zav is not only distinct from Parshat Vayikra, but is actually a unified entity with a very much in common between the various elements. The units that describe the sacrifices in Parshat Zav are no longer introduced with a similar terminology that we found in Parshat Vayikra of Adam ki akriv mekem, or Venefesh ki techata. Rather, the units discussing the various sacrifices in Parshat Sav are referred to as teachings as Torot. This is Torah Ta'ola, the teaching of the burn sacrifice, followed by the teaching of the meal offering, the teaching of the chatat, the sin offering, the teaching of the karban asham, the guilt offering, the teaching of the karban shlamim, the peace offering. In addition, the central laws pertaining to each type of the sacrifice here are conveyed by a separate p'tichat dibur, a separate divine utterance to Moshe, which begins with an explicit command to transmit the laws to the kohanim. Tzav et Aaron ve'banav limor, or in verse 18, Daber al Aaron ve'banav limor. As we mentioned last week with regard to the division of Sefer Vayikra, we noted that each one of the Ptichot Dibur, the list of utterances that introduce the various subject units of the Sefer, are going to help us understand the basic division and definition of the various units within the Sefer. So, Be'ezrat Hashem this week, we're going to note in Parashat Tzav how it the introduction to the parasha, will serve as the first p'tichat dibur. Command Aaron, this will be the subject of the first unit, beginning in chapter 6, verses 1 through 11. And that will be our subject matter today, the ashes and the fire and the laws of the meal offering pertaining specifically to the kohanim. Each day this week, we are going to focus on a new p'tichat dibur, 
So at tomorrow, we will continue with chapter 6, verse 12 through verse, verse 16, discussing the meal offerings of the Kohanim, the next Ptichat Ibor, verses 17 through 21, the laws of the Chatat, the Yasham, the Shlamim, and the Todah, together with their accompaniments pertaining to the Kohanim. And then verse 22, another beginning of an utterance discussing the prohibition of fats and blood, not necessarily particular to the Kohanim. And finally, verses 28 through 38 in chapter 7, the gifts to the Kohanim from the various sacrifices that will also conclude with a general chatima, a closure for all the laws of the Karbana from chapters 6 and 7. With that introduction for this week, let us begin with the first unit, or the first Ptichatibur in Parshat Zav, beginning in verse 1, Vayidaber Adonai al-Moshalimor, Tzav et Aaron ve'et Banav limor, Zo Torah ta'ola, Hi ha'ola al-Mukta al-Mezbeach kol ha'layla ad-haboker, Ve'esh ha'Mezbeach tukad bo. Hashem spoke to Moshe, saying to command Aaron and his sons, This is the law of the burnt offering of the Ola. It is that which goes on the firewood upon the altar all night unto the morning, and the fire of the altar shall be kept burning thereby. And the priest shall put on his linen garment, and his linen breeches shall he put upon him, and he shall take up the ashes where the fire has consumed the burnt offering on the altar, and he will put them beside the altar. And he shall put off his garments, put on other garments, and carry forth the ashes without the camp onto a clean place beyond the camp. And the fire upon the altar shall be kept burning thereby, it shall not go out, and the priest shall kindle wood upon it every morning, and he shall lay the burnt offering in order for it to be upon it, and shall make smoke upon the fat of the peace offerings, the chalvei shlamim. Fire shall always be kept burning on the altar continually. It shall never go out, shall never be extinguished. Just as Parshat Vayikra began with the laws of the voluntary sacrifice of the Karban Ola, the burnt offering entirely consumed on the Mizbech, so too Parashat Sav. And yet the most surprising element of this strange introduction is that when we hear Torah Ta'ula, the law of the Ola, we'd expect that following such an opening, we would find the actual laws pertaining to the sacrifice of the Ola, as we found when man brings the Ola in Parshat Vayikra. So too, we find that the very next verse after the introduction of the Ola in verse 7 begins with the Torah of the Mencha, Vizot Torah Mencha, together with all the laws that are pertaining to bringing the meal offering, particularly those involving the consumption of the Karban by the Kohanim. Likewise, a few psukim later, we read, Zotorat HaChatat, this is the law of the Chatat, and then the law of the Asham, and the laws of the Zevach Shlamim, and in each of these cases, we're taught the laws of the specific sacrifices that are mentioned in the introduction. 
And yet, by Torah Ola, the laws of the Ola, the text seems to ignore the details of the Ola completely, addressing instead various laws not concerning the sacrifice, but rather the altar itself and the ashes. At the beginning of the Pasuk, we read, This is the Ola which shall burn upon the altar. And logical then that the text should go on to describe the removal of the Ola from the Mizbeach after it has finished being burnt upon the altar. But the details that are provided don't mention at all the process involved in the sacrifice, nor are they consistent with the ensuing parshiot that will discuss the laws of the other sacrifices. In order to understand the uniqueness of this parshia, let's pay attention to how the laws are mentioned and their significance. It seems that the very first pasuk represents some type of heading, followed by a division into two separate sections. The psukim then are read as follows, we hear that this is the law of the Ola. Law number one, this is the Ola which shall burn upon the altar all night until the morning. And then the continuation, and the fire of the altar shall burn upon it. Those are the two separate headings, or the two separate laws that apparently concern not the sacrifice of the Ola per se, but something having to do with the altar upon which the Ola is going to be brought. Not only that the Ola burns upon the altar, but there's a fire on the altar. And then the ensuing Ptokim seem to fill in some of the details of each one of these headings. Namely, the next Pasuk tells us, and the Kohen shall wear his linen garment, and he shall wear linen trousers, and he shall take up the ashes. This Pasuk is coming to elaborate upon the laws of the Ola that's burning on the Mizbeach all night. And just as the first Pasuk ended with the fire of the altar shall burn upon it, the next Pasuk tells us that it shall not only not be extinguished, but the Kohen shall burn wood upon it every morning. Make sure that the Ola is set upon it and also the fat of the Shlamim upon it. And that ends with the same heading of an eternal fire shall burn upon the altar, it shall not be extinguished, just as we found in Pasuk Bet that introduced it, a beautiful inclusio format within the Psukim. Notice then that these two subheadings hint at the laws that are to follow and expand upon them. The first subheading deals with the Ola, which burns all night until the morning, and then the text concentrates on what the Kohen must do in the morning when the Ola has finished being burnt. It seems that the Torah is referring to a very specific Ola, an Ola that we've already heard about in Sefer Shmot, the Ola of the Karban Tamid that's offered in the evening, Bein Harabayim, at the end of the sacrifice of every day in the Mishkan, in addition to offering one in the morning. And yet, it's clear that this unit is not merely meant to tell us instruction of the timing of the Ola offering, but rather particularly paying attention to what the Kohen does at the conclusion of the Tamid offering at the end of the day, after the morning and the evening sacrifice has already been burned. Somewhat so, that Rashi maintains that what we learned from these laws applies not only to the Ola, but to all of the sacrifices that have been offered throughout the day. This introduces verses 2 and 3 that tell us how and where the Kohen must clear the ashes from the altar at the end of the day. These two verses are subdivided into two clear psukim. 
Pasuk Gimel, the lavash kohen midovad, the kohen shall wear his linen garment, he shall wear the trousers upon his flesh, he shall take up the ashes which the fire has consumed with the olah upon the altar, and shall place them beside the altar, followed by Pasuk Dalid, Ufashatet Begadav, he shall remove his garments, wear other garments, and he shall remove the ashes outside the camp to a place that is pure. Both parts of this command open with details concerning his clothing. The second clearing of the altar is characterized by the other garments which must be worn and contrasts with the Kohen's special linen garments which must be worn for the first cleaning. Following all these details of clothing, the Torah then commands that the ashes have to be removed. This is expressed in the Psukim by two separate verbs. In Pasukimel we hear Veherim etadeshen. He shall take up the ashes or lift up the ashes. In Pasuk Dalid, immediately after we hear about his clothing, Vahutsi et Hadeshen, El The second time is taking out or removing the ashes from the camp. Not only are there two separate directives, but also two separate locations. For the first removal, Ava Herim, he shall place them next to the altar, next to the Mizbah. For the second, Vahutsi, he takes it outside of the camp. Here the ashes entirely leave the area of the Mishkan and are taken outside of the camp of Am Yisrael. So what is the relationship between these two removals of ashes? Rashi explains, Vahutsi et Adeshen, when he shall remove the ashes, those are the ashes that have accumulated at the center of the Mizbeach, wherein there's so much of them in a pile that there's no place to even sacrifice anymore, and so he has to remove them from there. This is not a daily obligation. However, the Heirim et Hadeshen, which is mentioned first, the actual offering or lifting up of ashes, is obligatory every day. In other words, Rashi understands that the Psukim are describing two different acts and two different locations of cleaning the ashes because they are completely unrelated one to the other. There's a daily obligation to take the ashes or some of the ashes, veherim et hadeshen, which are already upon the mizbeach. This type of cleaning does not cause all the remains of the previous day sacrifices, namely the ola, which burned all night from the karban tamid, to be removed. Rather, it seems to be more of a symbolic clearing or lifting of the ashes. The remains that have not been cleared are going to be gathered to the center of the mizbeach. And when this is full, that's when a Kohen has to then remove all the ashes to a place outside of the camp. The second clearing that the Psukim referred to is performed whenever is necessary, when there's a lack of space on the Mizbeach to continue sacrificing. The Abarbanel, however, disagrees with this explanation of Rashi, explaining that the two Psukim do not exist independent one of the other and are referring to two different types of activities or cleaning of the Mizbeach, but actually are dependent one on the other and on a daily basis are going to be followed one by the other in a chronological manner. The Pasuk in fact describes a two-stage process of the ashes from the altar to somewhere outside of the Machaneh. The first stage is one in which the Kohen clears or Veherim et Hadeshen. He lifts up the ashes from the Mizbeach and is in contact with the Mizbeach and therefore must wear his big day kuhuna, his priestly garments. This stage concludes by taking the ashes and placing them from the Mizbeach, from the top of the altar 
to the side of the altar. Then the Pasuk moves on to the next stage, wherein the ashes, which have already been taken up and are next to the altar, are going to then be taken from a pile outside of the Mizbeach, which we generally call the Tapuach in Torah Shabalpeh, and they're taken outside of the camp. That's when the Kohen doesn't even have to come in contact with the Mizbeach, and therefore he may wear other garments, maybe even, as the Ramban posits, regular daily clothing. The Kohen then takes the ashes outside of the camp, which concludes the second and the final stage of clearing them off from the Mizbeach. Both according to Rashi and the Barbanel, this process of clearing the ashes from the Mizbeach involves some type of daily activity, whether according to Rashi, just lifting them up every morning, or according to the Barbanel, lifting them, removing them to the side of the Mizbeach, and continuing to take them outside of the Machaneh. The Torah then continues to elaborate on the second part of the heading, where we note then the repetition of the term that appeared in Pasuk Bet of the Eish HaMizbech, the focus no longer on the ashes, but rather the fire on the Mizbech that will always be burning upon it. This is referred back to in Pasuk 5, Va'eish HaMizbech Tukadbo, the exact same terminology. The fire will always be upon it, never to be extinguished, and in repeating this expression, the Pasuk brings us back to the original heading. This is then framed by the next Pasuk with the third appearance of this term, Eish tamid tukad al lo The focus is clearly the eternal fire that is burning upon the altar. The focus of the mitzvah is on the fire of the Mizbeach that must burn continually without any interruption. That is why wood has to be added sufficiently to ensure the continual fire. And when the wood is placed upon it each morning, care has to be taken to ensure that the fire is not going to be extinguished. This is not only to allow for the Ola to be sacrificed, but the Torah mentions likewise for the Shlamim. This only highlights that the subject of the Pasuk is in fact not the Ola, but rather the fire emphasized through the recurring phrases which framed this command again and again, emphasizing the continuity of the fire on the Mizbeach. So there are really two parts of Torah Ta'ula. The first part emphasizes the cleaning of the altar, which has to be performed at the start of every day, while the second part emphasizes the continuity of the fire. In Parashat Shmini, we're going to hear about the initial fire that served as a manifestation of the Shekhinah and consecrated the Mizbeach. In principle, this fire then never went out, albeit new wood had to be stoked upon the Mizbech on a daily basis, but in fact, this was really just a continuation of the fire that already existed. From here we find that these two commandments and these few psukim epitomize the fundamental tension of the Avodah in the Mishkan. Rav Yoni Grossman points out, that this highlights the tension between continuity and change. The fire that burns permanently upon the altar is never extinguished. It is there day after day. This eternal fire expresses the continuity of the presence of the Shekhinah, which began, even though we haven't learned about this yet, Yom Hashmini, on the eighth day of Chanukah Tamishkan, and which never ceased. At the same time, each day, the Mizbech must be cleared of the remains from the previous day. Each day brings the start of a renewed service in the Mishkan, and the sacrifices of each new day require a clean altar, literally a clean slate, a new start, teaching us 
that we have an opportunity on one hand for this Ola, which is upon the Mizbech, referring to the Korban Ola Tatamid, to serve as a continuous and constant means of sacrificing, but at the same time, the new wood and the fire that's placed upon and the ashes that are going to be removed teaches us that there's some novelty in every day. But if the point is to highlight the continual presence of the Shekhinah in the form of fire, and at the same time teach us cleaning off the Mizbech, then we know that this is not specific to a Karbanola, but in fact, our laws of the Mizbech. So why do these laws appear under the heading with which we began, Zotorata Ola? This is the law of the Ola. I thought it's not specific to the Ola. It seems at first that we're being taught the law not of a Karbanola, but the law of the Mizbech. And albeit important, why begin the law specific to the Kohanim in this manner, and why not be consistent by teaching us the details of how the Kohanim are going to relate to a Karban Ola? Rav Grossman points out that this relates to the fundamental relationship between Parshat Vayikra and Parshat Zav. As we've already mentioned, the whole list of sacrifices appears twice. So I hope you're all ready for this week of, on one hand, Chazara of Parshat Vayikra, but on the other hand, a very different order. The order in Parshat Vayikra of Ola, Menchash, Lamim, Chatat Hashem, and then immediately thereafter in Parshat Zav with the order of Ola, Mencha, Chatat, Hashem, Shlamim, is explained by the Ramban in his commentary at the beginning of Parshat Zav. The Torah begins Parshat Vayikra with the words, Daber al Bnei Yisrael v'amarta alihim, because that's where Hashem commands the people, the individuals in Am Yisrael to bring the sacrifices, whereas in Parshat Zav, Tzav et Aharon vet banav, Hashem is commanding Aharon, for he will describe how the sacrifices are to be offered for the Kohanim, how the Kohanim are going to perform them. In other words, the list of the sacrifices that appears in Parshat Vayikra is addressed to the individual Israelite who wishes to come closer to Hashem or to atone for his sins. The list of sacrifices, as it appears in Parshat Sav, on the other hand, is directed at the Kohanim who will supervise the slaughtering and the burning of the Korbanot. That is why the order, as we've mentioned in Parshat Vayikra, addressed to the individual member of Am Yisrael, is portrayed Adam Kiyakrivmikim, how the individual will get, will get close to Hashem, beginning with a voluntary sacrifice, followed by, at times, out of a sense of obligation. However, in Parashat Sav, all the sacrifices are obligatory, for once one brings them to the Mishkan, the Kohen is responsible for supervising the entire procedure of sacrifice. That is why in Parshat Zav, we're going to find the guidelines for the consumption of the sacrifices by the Kohanim. It's almost as if Parshat Vayikra introduced the first stages, one who brings a korban from his home to the Mishkan. And then Parshat Zav, once it's in the Mishkan, what happens to that sacrifice? Parshat Zav will deal mainly with the guidelines for the consumption of the sacrifices by the Kohanim, and therefore the order is entirely different. This time, We'll see how the sacrifices are going to be told or listed in the order based on how the Kohanim are going to deal with them. There will be two elements that will determine whether the Korban is defined as a Kodesh Kodeshim, a Holy of Holies, or Kodshe Kalim, a Lesser of the Holies, depending on the relationship of the Kohen to the sacrifice. The first element is who eats the sacrifice. The sacrifices that will be defined as Kodesh Kodeshim, 
are eaten only by male Kohanim, whereas regarding other Korbanot, the Kodshei Kalim, the rest of the Kohen's family, as well as the person who brings the sacrifice, may partake in the eating. The second element concerns where the Korban is eaten. The sacrifices defined as Kodshei Kodshim are eaten only in a holy place, the Azara, or the Chatzer, the courtyard of the Mishkan, whereas the other sacrifices, the Kodshei Kalim, may be eaten even in an extended area, in the time of the Beit HaMikdash, anywhere in Yerushalayim. To summarize then, Parshat Sav concerns or deals with the eating of the sacrifices, and it lists the laws regulating the consumption of the sacrifices by the Kohanim. However, there's one sacrifice which the Kohanim do not partake in at all, and that, as we know from Parshat Vayikra, is the Ola. The Ola is consumed in its entirety by the Mizbeach, or more precisely, by the eternal fire that burns upon the altar. Therefore, Parshat Sav, beginning its directive to the Kohanim, and how and what they may and must eat from the Karban, begins with Torah Ta'ola. However, when it comes to the Ola, the Kohanim are not allowed to eat of the actual sacrifice, but rather the Mizbeach consumes the Ola, and not the Kohanim. The continuation of the Parsha will delineate all the various laws of the karbanot that are going to be eaten, in fact, by the kohanim. In the case of the mencha, the chatat, the asham, the Torah conveys the kohanim, the laws of their consumption. In the case of the zevach shlamim, the Torah will deal not only with what the kohen eats, but also with what the owner is allowed to consume of the meat, even if the choice portions are given to the kohen. In the case of the ola, the Torah also describes the consumption. But who eats the ola? Not the Kohanim, not the Baal HaKarban, but only the Mizbeach. A person may lose sight of this concept. After all, one will see the fire continually burning upon the Mizbeach, forgetting about its significance. And that is why we're told that on one hand, the Mizbeach begins anew every day with the Harama and the Hutza'ah, the lifting and the removal of the ashes from the previous day, reminding us that just like the Kohanim, have an allotted time for the consumption, so too the fire has a limited 24-hour period in which it may consume the carbonate of the day, but together with that, the aspect of continuity, the consuming fire which burns continually. In fact, these are the two aspects of what the Ola symbolizes, the change on one hand and the continuity, the consuming fire which burns continually, reminding us that the presence of the Shekhinah is constantly in our midst. We conclude today with the last few psukim describing the continuation of the Torot, of the teachings of how the Kohanim are going to relate to the sacrifices once they're brought. Note how Pasuk Zion verse 7 begins, without a nuktichatibor, perhaps alluding to what we mentioned last week of the mencha being a certain type of ola. And therefore, it is the natural continuation. These are the laws of the meal offering. This is how the sons of Aaron will offer it before Hashem in front of the Mizbeach. Reminding you that we've already seen last week that it's the Baal HaKorban who decides whether he's going to bring this mincha from fine flour, the solet, or mafetanur, baked, or merchat machvat, fried like a pancake, or marcheshet, broad as a sufganiya. And then what does the Kohen do? Pasukhet, veheirim imenu bekumso, misolet hamencha, omishamna, vet kol halavuna, sheral hamencha, vektir hamizbeach, reach nichoach, askaratal adunai. He shall take the comets from this flower offering 
and place oil upon it, and place levona, frankincense upon it, and that becomes an askara, a memorial part that is going to be placed upon the mizbeach. But the rest of it, pasuktet, vanuteret mimena, yochlu aronu vanav, matzot achel b'makom kadosh, b'chatzar o moed yochluha. And everything that's left, Aaron and his sons are allowed to eat. This is going to be eaten as kotshe kotshim, only by the male children of Aharon in the particular place of the Chatzar Ol Moed, the courtyard of the Mishkan. Lo ta'fechamet chalkam natati ota mi'ishai kodesh kodeshimhi kechatat v'chasham. We've already learned that the mencha may not be brought from chametz, other than the lechem bikurim, representing the end of a process. And the Pasuk concludes, these are the portions that I've given from Ishai, from my offerings. I have given them to the Kohanim as Kodesh Kodeshim, as the most holy of the offerings. And this is not just specific to the Minchat, the flower offerings, but we're going to find similar laws by the sin offering and the guilt offering. And now for the last Pasuk of the unit, Kol Zachar B'vnei Aharon Yochlena Chok Olam L'dorotechem Mi'ishei Adonai Kol Asher Yigabahem Yikdash Every male amongst the children of Aaron may eat of these korbanot as a statue throughout the generations from the fire offerings given to Hashem, and therefore whoever touches them must be holy. Tomorrow we will continue with the next Ptichatibur of verses 12 through 16, a unique korban mencha, the korban mencha specific for Aaron and his children, known as the menchat chinuch, what is given by the Kohen on the day that he first begins his service as a Kohen.